It's Sweden in the late 1960s. Students are rioting in Paris. Anti-war protesters are demonstrating in Grosvenor Square. There are marches all across America. And here in Sweden, 400 policemen are struggling with 800 demonstrators outside the American embassy. The police have tear gas bombs, pistols, whips, truncheons, cars, riot dogs, megaphones and horses. The demonstrators are armed with cardboard signs, which get more and more sodden in the pelting rain. This is Stockholm on November 13, 1967. It's 11 o'clock now, and the demonstrators are all beginning to go home. But by three minutes past 11, something even more unpleasant is happening in quiet Stockholm. Involving a half-empty red double-decker bus in a far-flung suburb. The bus accelerates, skids, and crashes into the wall of the station depot. A man huddled in a heavy coat stumbles from the crashed vehicle, looks around him, and then runs off into the night as fast as he can. Hi, Ingrid. Not asleep yet. Oh. Hi, Dad. What did you say? A mum and Rolf asleep. I, I think so. Was the demonstration okay? Oh, I don't know. I was at Colbert's. <laughs> Quiet night then. You'd be surprised. <laughs> Gun was out and the baby kept waking up. A night packed with incidents. <laughs> Hardly. Have you got a test tomorrow? Mm, French. Do you want to test me? Oh, no thanks. I'm for the sofa bed. Well, good night, sweetie. And you go to sleep now. God bless. Night. Martin Beck is getting on well with his daughter, Ingrid, these days. Better than he's getting on with his wife, Inga. He's sleeping in the living room on the pretext that he doesn't want to disturb her when he comes home late. It's been like that for the past month. And now he really likes his sofa bed. Relations between them have worsened. And frankly, after 17 years of marriage, Martin's relieved not to have to sleep next to Inga. And she feels the same way too. Yes. Superintendent Beck. Speaking. Runia. Sorry to disturb you, sir, but some passengers have been found shot dead in a bus on Route 47 near the end of the line on Norra Starenskorten. Boss wants you to go there at once. How many dead? Not sure. Probably eight or nine. Anyone arrested? No. And superintendent? Yes. One of the dead. They say it might be a policeman. Who? I don't know. They didn't say a name. How many dead have we got? Eight. And a survivor in hospital. Is he lucid? Can he talk? Hardly. The doctors say he'll be lucky to get through the night. Have someone by his bed. He must have seen something. He can't speak. Well, you never know. Make sure there's a tape recorder there. Anything he says will be valuable. Sure. But the other thing, Martin. Yeah? There's a body on the seat behind the stairs. It's Stenstrom. 
Stenstrom. Ah, oh, Stenstrom. Yes. And he's got his service pistol with him. In his office next morning, Detective Superintendent Martin Beck begins to sum up the situation. Working with him are Detective Inspector Colbert, who's eating a jam donut, and Detective Inspector Melander. Well known throughout the force for a memory like a herd of elephants. And for the amount of time he spends in the lavatory. As far as I can see, the identity of the driver's no problem. He's Gustav Bengtsson, and it was his last one of the day. Right so far, Melander? Yes. The gunman fired 67 cartridges altogether, all from the same weapon, and he was standing by the exit door. Uh, and Stenstrom, did he have a chance to fire? No, he got shot in the back five times. Right. Do we know anything else? Only that he worked for us, was 29, and lived with his fiancée, Orsa. Who was the girl next to him? A nurse, 28. Unmarried and worked in the Sabatsburg Hospital. Next? The only survivor, Alphonse Schwerin, employed by the highway department and living alone. He's still in a coma. Uh, he might be able to talk when... Well, the doctors just don't know. The one hit by eight bullets in the corner was an Algerian who lived in a kind of boarding house and was on his way home from work. And the guy with his face totally blown off, carrying 1,823 kroner in cash. That's a hell of a lot of money to be carrying around. Well, there's nothing to tell us who he is. Even his mother couldn't identify him. OK, we've got two more with nothing startling about them. A foreman going home from work and a widow going home from babysitting. Mm -hmm. That only leaves Josta Assasson. 42, carrying a bottle of Johnny Walker and seven condoms. His wife has no idea why he was on the bus. Ah, so what do we learn from all this? Apart from the guy with his face blown off and all the cash, I can't see anything odd about any of them. No, no, Stenstrom's another odd one. What was he doing on that bus? And why, why did he have his pistol ready to shoot? No idea. Does anyone know what he was working on lately? Just routine stuff, nothing special. There hasn't been very much for him to do lately. He's had quite a bit of time off because he did so much overtime before. I think someone ought to talk to his fiance again. She might have some idea what he was up to. The investigation proceeds pretty slowly. The dying man, Schwerin, is still dying and the policemen by his bed wait in vain for him to speak. Martin Beck and Colbert visit Stenstrom's office at the new police headquarters in Vesperia, way out in the suburbs. It is neat, tidy and impersonal. There's not even a photograph of his fiancée on the desk. Everything seems in apple pie order. Oh. <coughs> you sound awful, Martin. You get more like my wife every day. There is nothing new here we don't know about, is there? Well, except for these photographs. Hmm. I didn't know Stenstrom was a photographer. With interests like these. I think these are pictures of his fiance. I think it's also. I'd never have dreamed he'd have such far out tastes. Hmm. She can stand on her hands, too. Hmm. You've seen her before, haven't you? With her clothes on, yeah. And the right way up. What do you think he wanted these pictures for? Oh, to look at. Well, yeah, of course, but... Still. Orsa Terrell, Stenstrom's fiancée, is slight and pretty. 
but the ashtrays in her flat are filled to overflowing. Her hand shakes, and she has dark rings under her eyes. What I don't understand is why he was on that bus. What was he doing there? We were hoping you could tell us. But I don't know. Do you know what he was doing earlier in the day? He was working. He was working all the time, not Sunday, but Saturday and Monday. Did he tell you what he was working on? No. Didn't he usually tell you? Yes, but not lately. Well, I thought maybe he wasn't allowed. Anyway, why are you asking me? You're his superiors. If you're trying to find out if he told me any police secrets, he certainly didn't. He said absolutely nothing about his job in the last three weeks. Perhaps he didn't have anything to tell you. We've not had much to do these last three weeks. How can you say that? He had tons to do. He was working practically night and day. Meanwhile, the one survivor of the mass murder still lies silent in hospital. Detective Constable Run, at once bored and anxious, sits beside Schwerin's bed. He has a tape recorder at the ready. Run has two questions written down in his notebook. Who did the shooting? And what did he look like? Who did the shooting? Who did the shooting? Derek. What did he look like? Coulson. Who? Let's hear it again. Who did the shooting? Derek. What did he look like? What on earth is he saying? Well, you were there, Ron. Well, what do you think? I think he understood the questions and was trying to answer. And? I think he's answering the first question in the negative. I, th I think he's trying to say, I don't know. How the hell do you make that out? Well, I just sort of got that impression. And the second one? He says, Coulson. Yeah, I can hear that, but what does he mean? Carlson, perhaps. He says, Coulson. Yeah, but that's not a name. There's no one called that in Sweden. Oh, anyway, thank you, Ron. Sir. We'd better check the recording again and then get the experts to analyse it. OK. What next? I guess we just got to look at everyone on the bus very thoroughly again. All right. Well, we know that there was nothing to connect Stenstrom and the nurse, so we needn't do anything about her. The driver, the foreman and the widow have all been properly checked, so they're out of the picture as well. That leaves the Algerian, the guy with no face, and Josta Assasson, the one with seven condoms and a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label. It turns out that Eusta Assasson's wife cannot have children. She had no idea why he was on the bus. She thought he was meeting up with some old school friends. The seven condoms suggested otherwise. So Eusta Assasson was visiting his mistress, and Martin Beck and his team are no nearer to solving the murders. The daily papers ferret out the story of Schwerin's death in hospital and start to accuse the police of dragging their feet. And concealing information. Meanwhile, Colbert still finds it difficult to forget those photographs he and Martin Beck found in Stenstrom's office. He gets home at 11 one night to find Gunn, his wife, reading in an armchair, wearing a short housecoat, with her bare legs drawn up under her. I haven't seen you for ages. How are you all getting on? Badly. Is there anyone else besides you who hasn't been home for 36 hours? Probably. Gunn? Yes. Stand up. Certainly. 
Strip. 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 Now, turn around. Do you want me to stay like this? No, the front's even better. <laughs> Thank you. Can you stand on your hands? If you want me to. You don't have to. I can if you like. <laughs> How long do you want me to stay like this? Come down now. Um, supposing I wanted to take your photograph like that. Naked, standing on my hands? Yeah. But you don't even have a camera. That's neither here nor there. Oh, what the hell is this all about? If you want to make love to me, we've a really comfortable bed in the bedroom. And if you can't be bothered going that far, well, there's a nice soft rug right here. Stenstrom had lots of pictures of his girlfriend, also like that, in his office drawer. The question is why. Oh, he probably wanted to show them to his mates, to boast. He wasn't like that. Let's go to that comfortable bed. <laughs> Martin, <clears throat> you're waking us all up with your coughing. Oh, sorry, sorry, Inga. Why on earth are you smoking? Your throat's bad enough as it is. <clears throat> sorry, sorry, I woke you, sorry. <laughs> Doesn't matter, I just don't want you to get pneumonia again. You better not go into work tomorrow. Mm, I'm afraid I have to. If you're ill, you're ill. You shouldn't go in. You're not the only policeman in Stockholm. Just leave those papers alone, put the light out and go to sleep. Gun, is Len out there? Oh, uh, uh, yeah, right here. What is it? So, am I disturbing you? <laughs> you might say that. What the hell is it? Do you remember last summer, just after the park murders? Yes, what? We had nothing special to do, and then the boss said we were to look at old, unsolved cases. Yes. Yeah. What was Stenstrom working on? He never told me. Did he tell you? No. I'm sure he must have been working on an old case. I mean, that, that makes sense, doesn't it? Is that it? Is that why you're ringing? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. So, yeah, that's it. Sorry. Martin, mm -hmm. go to hell. Colbert turns back to Gunn, but Martin Beck lies alone on the sofa bed, thinking about the old cases Orca Stenstrom could have been exploring. It's dawn before he gets to sleep. Contrary to all expectations, the following morning brings a hopeful scrap of news. They've identified the weapon as a submachine gun Model 37 Suomi type. It's Finnish. That's one of the old kind with the wooden butt. No one's seen one like that since the 40s. Uh, and the ammunition was old too. Do we need to tell the papers? No, no, not a whisper. What's the news on the Algerian passenger, Melanda? Much as you'd expect. He was lodging with a Mrs. Carlson in appalling conditions. Did you find anything out? Nope. She just kept on about him owing her this month's rent, and apart from that, everything seems absolutely innocent. 
It's now been a week since the bloodbath in the bus. There's still a month to go before Christmas, but the weather is bitter with wind and snow. There's nothing incriminating about most of the bus passengers. There's still no explanation about Stenstrom's presence on the bus. And the victim with his face blown off still hasn't been identified. Details of his clothes have been released to the press. They were all bought at a Swedish chain store. His teeth seem to have been treated by a foreign dentist. There are grains of hashish in his jacket pocket, and the autopsy reveals that he was a junkie. Oh, and he had advanced gonorrhea. Despite all this, the police have no leads. Then Melanda receives an unexpected tip-off. A woman in Hargeston telephoned. And? She lives next to a garage where there are lots of foreigners. What's that got to do with us? Well, it's usually pretty noisy. And apparently one of the noisiest was a small dark man, about 35, whose clothes matched our description. And she says there hasn't been any sign of him since the murders. There are thousands of people with clothes like that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's useless, but we'd better have a look. Okay. What else? Well, I think the key questions are what was Stenstrom doing on the bus? Mm -hmm. And what was the man with no face doing on the bus? And don't forget that the man with his face shot off not only had hash, but he also had more money than all the other passengers put together. Yes, but put him to one side for a moment and come back to Stenstrom. What was he good at? Mm, well, he could shadow brilliantly, and he never gave up. He was skillful, and he was stubborn. If you've been thinking he could have been working on an old case, did you ask the boss what it could have been? Yes, yeah, I, I drew a blank. I suppose he just went through any paperwork he could find. Well, we searched his office and there's nothing there, so uh, I guess we better talk to his fiance again and find out if she can uh, give us any kind of clue. Who's going to do that? Not me. I've never met her. I'll follow up my lead with the lady in the garage in Hargeston. Me or you then, Martin? Well, I think you're best fitted for it. Well, don't you want to do it? No, I don't. I will. This evening. If you want. While Colbert gets ready to see Orsa, Melanda goes off to talk to the woman who lives next to the garage in Hargeston. She says she noticed a short, dark man with a very loud laugh wearing clothes just like the ones in the police description. And she says she's not seen him since the murders. It's not much information to go on, but Melanda follows it up by walking round to the garage next door. Excuse me, sir. Could I have a word with you? Police? My papers are in order. I don't doubt it. What do you want, then? We're trying to get in touch with a mate of yours. I'm afraid we don't know his name. He's about your height. Dark hair, brown eyes. Could be anyone. Do you know anything else about him? Only that he wore a black nylon coat and had a really loud laugh. Like this. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah, then I, I think I know what you mean. A little dark guy. He always seemed a bit drunk or something. Do you think he might have been on something? Everybody around here gets high when they're not stealing. Do you have any idea of his name? Or maybe his nickname? No. But he sometimes had a girl I recognise with him. I've seen her in a cafe on Tenyagorton, where all the foreigners go. Do you know her name? Can you tell me what she looks like? Blonde. Long hair. Big girl. I think they call her Blonde Marlin. While Melander is making his way to the cafe to find Blonde Marlin, Kohlberg is less happily calling on Stenstrom's fiancée, Orsa. 
He's armed himself against temptation by telling Gun, his wife, exactly where he's going. Before he left to talk to Orsa, he made love to his wife. She called it a vaccination. Listen, Orsa, when we were last here, we weren't altogether frank with you. In what way? In several ways. Have you any idea at all what Orca was doing on that bus? No, no, and no again. I do not know. Nor do we. Orsa, I'm afraid he lied to you when he said he was working. He wasn't on duty either on the Monday he was killed or on the previous Saturday. He had a lot of time off in October and the first two weeks of November. Whatever you say, he wasn't working with us. I don't believe you. It's a fact. Another thing. Was he in the habit of carrying his pistol when he wasn't on duty? Yes, often. Didn't do him much good, did it? I really loved him, you know. I know. Also. Yes. He was away a lot. You don't know what he was up to. We don't know what he was up to. Do you think he might have been seeing someone else? No. It's completely out of the question. Why? I know for sure. And it's none of your business. Was he interested in photography? Yes, he loved it. Well, take a look at these. Oh my God! Where did you get these? From his office. Who's seen them? The entire police force? No, just Martin and me. How embarrassing. God. When did he take them? About three months ago. We thought it was fun. But why did he have them in his desk? There was absolutely nothing else personal in the whole of his office apart from these photographs. I don't know. Did he always go about with a gun? Lately he liked to. Why? Listen, Orsa, the reason I'm here is that we don't believe that Orca was killed by chance. We don't believe he was on the bus for pleasure. Then what do you believe? That you were right when you said he was working, but for some reason or other he didn't want to let anybody know what he was doing. We think maybe he was shadowing someone. I see. Did he change in any way before this happened? Yes. Have these pictures anything to do with it? Last summer, when we were away on holiday, you lot all had this extremely difficult, nasty case, and when we came back, Orca was really fed up about it. He felt that he'd missed something, and he kind of wanted to prove himself. Well? Towards the end of July, he changed, and that's when he took all these photographs. And our sex life changed completely. He never had the same sex drive as me, but suddenly he became much more interested. And I felt as if he was trying out some kind of experiment with lots more sex and all those pictures. And then? About the middle of September it stopped. He suddenly had so much to do and then he began to be away a good deal. Did you notice anything special? He was out of doors a lot. He used to come home wet and cold. And he began to talk about a man called Birgerson, who'd killed his wife. Birgerson? Yes. Well, I remember it was a very straightforward case. Birgerson's in prison now. Orca did the interrogating. Well, one day he came home very cheerful because this Birgerson had told him something important. What? Well, he wouldn't say. Just laughed and said I'd soon find out. I looked at his notebook, but it only had one word written in it. Morris. And that's it. You can have it if you want. That and those bloody photographs. I wouldn't have minded if I'd only got pregnant. <laughs> What's going to happen to me? I just don't know what I'm going to do.
Come home with me, Orsa. We've got plenty of room. There's just me, Gun, and the baby. You've been alone long enough. Meanwhile, Martin Beck thinks hard about Stenstrom, what he'd been working on, whether he'd been shadowing someone, and whether that someone had shot him. And Melanda pays a visit to the cafe on Tenya Gorton. Excuse me for interrupting, but I'm looking for a Miss Marlin. That's me. What do you want? I'm Detective Inspector Melanda. It's about a friend of yours. I'm not grassing on anybody. <laughs> it's not a question of being a grass, Miss Marlin. A few weeks ago, you went to a garage in Hargeston with a small dark man. I'm not going to inform on anyone. You don't have to, Miss Marlin. I'd just like to know what your companion usually wore. Why? It'll really help us. <laughs> well, most of the time he wore a suit. Sort of light beige. With covered buttons. And a shirt and shoes and underpants, like other blokes. Didn't he have an overcoat? Not really an overcoat. A sort of um, thin black thing. Nylon, why? Look, Miss Marlin, this may be a shock. But it's possible he's dead. Dead? Niels? Why? Why do you think he's dead? The thing is, with a man out at the morgue, we haven't been able to identify. And there's reason to think it might be your friend, Niels. We'd be grateful if you'd come and identify him. Me? Come out to the morgue? Not on your life. A definite identification, then. And she turned up trumps, didn't she, this blonde Marlin? And she really took to you, Martin. Thought you were a sweetheart. I'll tell that to my wife. Well, sweethearts, <laughs> shall we sum up, then? OK. So the man with no face is Niels Eric Goranson, mm -hmm. aged 38 or 39, no permanent employment. He lived with Marlin in Stockholm between March and August 1967. Drug addict, possible pusher, had gonorrhea. Last seen by her on November 3rd or 4th, wearing the same suit and coat as the night he was killed. You picked up his things from his lodgings, didn't you? Yep, the usual dirty clothes, nothing much really. The only interesting thing was a bit of paper in his shirt pocket. And? It was a restaurant bill with some calculations on the back. He seemed to have got 3,000 kroner from... It just said BF. Let's give the paper to the tech boys and see if they can find out anything more. BF, 3,000 kroner, sounds like drugs to me. Mm, could be. Apparently Goranson was splashing money around just before he was killed. I asked Miss Marlin if she knew where he'd got it from, but she had no idea. She said he didn't have any kind of proper job and seemed nervy as hell a week or two before he disappeared. So where does this get us? I don't know. He was never picked up for anything. We've checked. But the name Goranson rings a bell. I know I've come across it before. It'll come to you, Melanda. It always does. While Melanda is trying to remember where he's heard the name Goranson before, his colleagues return to Stenstrom and his interviews with the prisoner called Birgason. I've listened to all Stenstrom's tapes and there is nothing new in them. Beats me why Stenstrom was so interested in him. You better go and talk to Birgerson in prison, hadn't you? It may turn up something. <sighs> okay, if I have to. So Colbert goes to see Birgerson in Longholman prison. All he learns is that the murderer had really liked Stenstrom. And that they often talked about cars. In particular, they talked about a rusty old Morris that Birgerson had once owned. Elsewhere, Tura Assarson, the brother of the murdered man, the man with the mistress is arrested, smuggling about a million kroners worth of drugs. 
It occurs to Martin Beck that Stenstrom could have been shadowing Assasson and the murderer on the bus. This video was uploaded to the channel Thinking Out Louder. Please like, comment and subscribe to the Thinking Out Louder channel. Thank you. could have been killing two birds with one stone. He's wrong, in fact, but nevertheless, he's just put the investigation on the right track. Two birds with one stone. Bless you. Thanks. Hmm. Not many people are polite enough to say thank you these days. I once had a case where a man beat his wife black and blue and then flung her out in the snow because she hadn't thanked him when he said bless you. He was drunk, of course. Is Stenstrom's fiancée still staying with you? Yes, and don't say, how's the harem? That's all I hear in the canteen at the moment. Okay. Uh, listen, mm -hmm. I've been thinking, and I'm pretty sure I know what Stenstrom might have been working on. What? I've been through every case file for the last 20 years, and it's the only one that fits. I think he was investigating the Teresa business. W why? The Teresa case was infamous. If Stenstrom had solved that, he might well have got a medal. Well, I think he really wanted to show us what he was capable of once and for all. And then he went and got himself shot. Christ, how stupid. Yeah. I don't remember the Teresa case. Was I around at the time? No. It was 16 years ago. Could it be solved, even now? I shouldn't think so for a moment. Anyway, just take a look at this. I got it out of records. Mean to say Stenstrom waded through all this stuff? There's every indication he did. It'd take a week. At least. The Teresa file was unbelievably thick. In 1951, on June the 10th, a woman's naked body was found in some bushes near the Stadshorgan sports ground. It was Teresa Camaro. She'd been strangled. Her dead body had been kept somewhere cold for five days and then wrapped in a grey blanket and left on the ground for 12 hours at the most. Were there any witnesses? Three. All men. A car mechanic, his friend, and, as luck would have it, a police sergeant. Never. About 11 o'clock, the night before the body was found, the three witnesses had all seen a car parked nearby, and two of them saw a man as well. All they could say was that he was fairly tall, but they all agreed the car was a Renault CV4 with an A license plate. There was a massive murder investigation. Every Renault CV4 in the whole country was checked. Even the Danish, Norwegian and Finnish police were brought in. And? Not one of those cars could possibly have been in that place at that time. Any leads from her? Lots. Too many. She'd been married to a respectable man that had no children and suddenly, two years before the murder, she seems to have had some kind of breakdown and left home. And at the time of her death, she was working as a prostitute. What happened to the husband? He divorced her. He changed his name and remarried very happily. His alibi was absolutely watertight. All the clients were interviewed, and apparently she was very persistent and sexually voracious. Just look at the photos in that folder. You'll see where Stenstrom got some of his ideas for his, um, little photo shoot with Orsa. Jesus. Mm. She's supple. Mm -hmm. Who took these? A photographer with a perfect alibi and nothing to do with a Renault car. What possible connection can this have with the fact that Stenstrom and eight other people are shot dead on a bus 16 years later? None at all. 
except Stenstrom seemed to be combing his way through this investigation. He took sexy photos just like these and ended up being killed on a bus. And what do you think he found? Nothing. There's nothing to find. There's not one loose thread. The car was the main lead and it simply vanished into thin air and all Teresa's clients had alibis for the time the body was dumped. How do you know all this? Because I did exactly what Stenstrom did 11 years ago and I didn't find anything either. Really? Yeah, but I could kick myself for not having made the connection with Teresa the minute we found those photographs in Stenstrom's drawer. It only hit home when I saw the pictures in the files. But it still doesn't tell us what he was doing on the bus. No... No, it doesn't. Colbert checks out Teresa's ex-husband. Who says, am I never to be left in peace? Only last summer there was a young detective here. His alibi proves to be absolutely faultless. Then Colbert questions the photographer who says, Teresa? I remember Teresa. Nipples the size of beer bottle tops. Funny you should ask. There was another detective asking questions about her a few months ago. And then Colbert reads every word of the report. No loose ends. Even so, he makes a list of everyone who was interrogated about the Teresa case to find out who's still around and exactly what they're doing. But a month has passed since the 67 shots were fired in the bus and the murderer is still at large. And Martin Beck decides that Melanda might as well try to find out a bit more about Schwerin, the man who died in hospital, and see if anyone can make any sense of his dying words. Melanda. Detective Inspector Melanda. Sorry to disturb you, but I'm making inquiries about your former colleague, Alphonse Schwerin. Poor bugger. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? Go ahead. I don't think I can tell you much more than I told the other lot. We know he had a bit of trouble with alcohol in the past. Did he drink much lately? No, not much. He was a decent bloke. Good-tempered. And he never had enough money to drink a lot. He wasn't the hardest worker on the block, but I don't think he had an enemy in the world. You know he was born in America. Did he still have any kind of accent? Of course he did. And when he was drunk, he always spoke English. When he was drunk? Yeah. And when he lost his temper, or got worked up. English was his first language. He never really got my name right. Couldn't quite grasp how to pronounce Olsen. What do you mean, couldn't pronounce Olsen? What did he call you? Olsen. He used to call me Olsen. So you think it goes like this. Who did the shooting didn't recognise him? What did he look like? Like Olsen. You think he was speaking English, not Swedish? Yes, it's what he always did when he was stressed, so it makes sense he'd be speaking English when he was dying. So what the hell did the killer look like? All we know is that he looked like someone called Olsen. He's mid-40s, about six feet tall, weighs about 170 pounds. Ash blonde wavy hair, lanky build, long face, wide mouth, thin lips and good teeth. How do you know all this? Olsen's next door in my office right now. They have a possible description of the murderer, but until they have a suspect, it's not much use. Colbert continues to plod on with his list of every man interviewed about Teresa Camaro. Some are now in prison or in homes for alcoholics or the insane. Some have moved away or disappeared at sea or died. As Christmas approaches, Colbert has 29 men on his list. Martin Beck gives it to Melanda in the hope that one of the names will jog his legendary memory. 
And Martin Beck reflects that Sweden now has its first unsolved mass murder and he is in charge of finding the perpetrator. Come on, Martin, light the candles, then we can open the presents. Oh, come on, Dad, let's open the presents. All right, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) What's this, Dad? I can see it's not a horse. It's riding lessons and a pair of jumpers. I'm sorry we can't afford a horse, sweetheart, but this is the next best thing. (laughs) Open my present next, Dad. I bought it specially. Oh, what is it? Oh, a record. Look! Well, there's a picture of a London policeman on the sleeve. That's a clue. (laughs) Listen, it's meant to cheer you up. Lennart Colbert is looking forward to several large brandies when the phone rings. It's Longholm in prison. Birgesson, what the hell have you called me out to tell me on Christmas Eve? Do you remember when you came to see me, you were asked about the car? My car, the Morris? Yes. You said Inspector Stenstrom had it written in his notebook, didn't you? Yes. I talked a lot to him about cars. You see, when I lived with my wife, I used to go out in the evenings just to get away. And I used to walk along the streets and through the car parks and look at all the cars. And? I became quite an expert. Got so that I could recognise them all. I could have won one of those television quizzes on cars. And you told Inspector Stenstrom this? Yes. He said he thought it was very interesting. And this is what you brought me out here to tell me at 9.30 on Christmas Eve? Wait a minute. I haven't told you the most important part yet. The bit that really interested Inspector Stenstrom. Well? I told him the most difficult thing with cars was to distinguish certain models if it was dark or if they were a long way off. And? It was very, very hard. Just small details. So what was this to do with Inspector Stenstrom and your Morris? No, not my Morris. What interested the Inspector so much was... When I told him that the hardest of all was to see the difference between a Morris Minor and a Renault CV4 from the front. Not from the side or back, that was easy, but from straight in front or obliquely in front, that was really difficult. Wait a minute. Did you say Morris Minor and Renault CV4? Yes. He gave quite a start when I told him. From the front, you said? Yes. He asked me that lots of times. From in front... Or obliquely in front. Very difficult. From those angles, the Renault CV4 and a Morris Minor look just the same. The dinner's ruined, you know. No, it isn't. With your looks and my appetite, you could put a dead cat on the table. I would be overjoyed. By the way, Martin called up again about half an hour ago. Doesn't anyone remember it's Christmas Eve? First it's the prison, then it's your boss. Okay, I'll give him a bell while you're getting the grub. Hello, back here. What on earth is that noise? Oh, it's my Christmas present from Ingrid. Laughing policeman. Doesn't make me laugh. 
Anyway, I rang you because uh, Melanda called me. What did he want? He says he's remembered where he's seen the name Nils Eric Goranson. Who? Christmas has really got to you, hasn't it? Goranson's the man on the bus with his face blown off, uh -huh. carrying all the money. Yeah. You remember Melanda said he'd seen the name somewhere before. Okay. Where's he seen it, then? In the Teresa Camaro investigation. No, he can't have. I've read the whole damn lot, and I'd have noticed that name. Have you, have you got the papers there at home? No, I haven't. They're back in the office. But I'm sure Goranson's name wasn't in them. Are you absolutely sure, Colbert? Dead sure. Okay. Okay, I believe you. What did you do down at the clink? Well, I've got some vague information. I don't want to talk about it now, but if it's right... Yeah? ...then you can use every single sheet of the Teresa investigation as lavatory paper. Anyway, good night. Merry Christmas. Are you going out again? Not until Wednesday. Where's the brandy? So the bells ring in the new year of 1968. 1968, the year Sweden gives political asylum to American deserters. The year the Doors play Stockholm. The year Rudi Dutschgar holds court at Uppsala University. And at the beginning of January, with the traditional Swedish hangover, Stockholm makes its reluctant way back to work. Martin Beck and his team reassemble to pick up the threats. Colbert starts to follow up Birgesson's information about the car. If it was a Morris Minor, not a Renault CV4 that was seen near Teresa's body, then the whole investigation has been blown wide open. Melanda starts to work out if there's any clue in the scrap of paper in Goranson's shirt. And Martin Beck looks through all the papers on the Teresa case yet again. What's up, Melanda? It's just that I don't usually make a mistake. I don't understand it. What about Goranson's name, you mean? Yes. Well, I've been through the Teresa file with a fine tooth comb, and there's something that might cheer you up. What? There's a page missing from the investigation. Page 1244, to be precise. Obviously, there's something on it we might need to know. While Martin Beck is seeing if there's another copy of the Teresa report on file, Colbert is visiting the local garage with photographs of a 1950 Morris Minor. Could you just look at this photograph and tell me what make of car this is? Renault CV4, an old job. You sure? I'll bet you like I'm never wrong. Positive? Yes, it's a CV4, old model. Thanks. Hey, wait a sec. Are you trying to trick me? Look again. Carefully. No, this isn't a Renault. It's a Morris. A Morris Minor, model 50 or 51, and... There's something wrong with the picture. Yep, it's been touched up and made to look as if it were taken in a bad light and in the rain on a summer evening, for instance. Who on earth are you? Police. Ah, I might have known. There was a policeman here asking just the same things early last autumn. So, Stenstrom's been there before us. Exactly. And a page has been taken out of the report. It must have been him. I'll send someone to go through his flat and his office again. See if they can find anything we've missed. In any case, I know there's another copy of the report in the files and I've got someone to go and look it out. Why don't we go through the list of Teresa's clients while we're waiting? I've already done that twice. And? I've narrowed it down to a possible 14. How? Got rid of everyone over 60 and the ones who were 20 or under. And every one of your 14 has alibis? You bet your life. At least for the time the body was dumped in the sports ground when our witnesses saw the man and the car. Something comes to mind about needles and haystacks. 
Well, I can only suggest we look at the copy of the report and see if page 1244 can tell us anything important. And it does. Melander is right. It's the record of the interrogation of Nils Erik Goronsson, the dead man on the bus with no face. I was right about the name, but I can't see that this tells us anything much more except he was one of her clients. And that he owned a Morris Minor, like the car seen where Teresa's body was dumped. But her body was dumped on July the 9th. And it says clearly here that he was in Aqua at that time, working as a salesman for a firm in Stockholm. His alibi for the night the three men saw the car was absolutely confirmed by the staff at his hotel. There's even a statement from one of the waiters who said Goransson sat in the hotel dining room and got very drunk on the night of July the 9th. Now the car's too much of a coincidence to let this go. So what do we do now? What Stenstrom never had time for. Colbert, better go down to Aqua and see if there's anything we can find out there. In this weather? Yes, Colbert, in this weather. So Colbert drives 200 miles through the night in a snowstorm on icy roads. At the hotel in the pretty little Lakeland town of Aqua, Goranson's bill is retrieved from a dusty cardboard box in the loft. It confirms that he stayed 11 days from June the 2nd to June the 13th. But there is one item on this bill which catches Colbert's eye. A garage repair bill. It took the garage owner about an hour and a half to find his records. And? Goranson wasn't driving his own car. He had a Ford Vedette in Aqua, not his Morris Minor. I see, so the Morris could have been in Stockholm. Yeah, I think we need to look and see if any of the guys on the list had a car in 1951 and find out the make. Was there a record of the registration number? Yeah, but it was too smudged to read. You could only see the A, so it must have come from Stockholm. So it looks as if Stenstrom really was onto something. Can we get someone to find out who owned the firm that employed Goranson and see what it did? Sure. When do you think you'll be back? Uh, about midday tomorrow. All right. See you then. Sorry to disturb you, Martin, but I've been thinking about why Goranson had so much money on him when he was killed. Drugs? Well, yes, but it was a hell of a lot for a small-time dealer to be carrying about. Those letters, BF, on his bit of paper next to 3,000 kroner. Brought forward? Not very likely a man like Goranson would have a bank account. I was wondering if it could be a person. Oh, maybe. So I looked at the list of Teresa's clients, and there are three people with those initials. Bo Frostenson, Bengt Fredriksson, and Bjorn Fosbear. Well... While we're waiting for Colbert, we could take a cautious look at them, see if any of them looks like Olsen. I've found out where they are. They're all in Stockholm. It won't take long. Oh, well, let's see if we can find them. But Baked Fredriksson was very fat, with a red beard and lank grey hair. Not at all like Olsen. And Bo Frostenson was lean and bald with a nervous twitch and a stammer. Ditto. But with Bjorn Forsberg... They hit the jackpot. Tall, slim, ash-blonde hair and good-looking. Very, very like Ulsson. He may well look like Ulsson, but it's no kind of real proof, is it? Hold on a minute, listen to this. We made inquiries about who on the list owned a car in 1951. And? Only nine of them had a car that summer. Bjorn Fosbear had a vedette, just like the one Goranson had in Aqua. Did anyone else? No, and besides that, Fosbear sent it to a scrapyard a week after it had been questioned by the police. Did you find out anything about the company Goranson worked for? Uh, not much. Stolen goods, I should think, and furs and dresses. And guess what? It was owned by Bjorn Fosbear. Right, let's fill Colbert in. Well, four weeks before Teresa Camaro was murdered, 
Bjorn Fosbear got engaged to a very wealthy girl. He married her, and when her father died, she inherited both his money and his firm, and now Fosbear is its managing director. He met his wife only a few months before they married. They've got three children, and they seem to be very happy. Mm. One more thing. Fosbear was a volunteer for Finland in the Winter War in 1940. What are his alibis like? Weak. He lived in a bachelor flat. So no one could vouch for his movements on June the 9th. Now he said he'd had a meeting in Natalia at 7, and then he took the last train back to Stockholm. He said he'd lent his car to one of his salesmen. Goranson? Must have been. But he was damn careful not to say that he'd been using Goranson's Morris himself. His flat was in the same building as his offices, and there was a cold storage room for furs in the yard. I seem to remember the report said he met Teresa in 1950, slept with her a few times, but when he met his wife, he lost interest in her. So I guess Stenstrom started rooting around in the Teresa case, and when he got that strange tip from Bergerson, he realised Goranson was not only the owner of a Morris Minor, but was also getting money from somewhere. So he decided to shadow him and see if he could lead him to the murderer. What's Fosbear's alibi for the bus murders? We managed to get hold of his German maid. She's here now and we're keeping her overnight. Apparently, she had that Monday night off and Mrs Fosbear was out at a ladies' dinner, so they thought he was alone at home. He could easily have been on the bus. It all fits. He had an awful lot to lose. Do we have enough evidence to take him in? Not for the bus, but we can bring him in as a suspect for the murder of Teresa Camaro, now that we know about the cars. When? Tomorrow. Where? At his office, the minute he arrives. How? As quietly as possible. No shooting, no kicked-in doors. The blonde behind the marble counter at reception puts down her nail file when Martin Beck, Colbert and Melanda arrive at Forsberg's office. Some armchairs are grouped round a low glass table and the three men sit down. After 20 minutes, Forsberg arrives. He's just about to hang up his overcoat when he catches sight of Beck, Colbert and Melanda. He checks himself for a fraction of a second, then comes towards them. Superintendent Beck, uh, Detective Inspectors Colbert and Melanda, would like a word with you, sir. Certainly. Uh, please come in. I'll see you later, Miss Gold. I'll be engaged with these gentlemen for a little while. Forsberg precedes them into his office, which is large and tastefully furnished. He walks towards the desk with deliberate steps, looks steadily at Martin Beck and then opens the desk drawer. When his hand reappears, he is holding a pistol. Before the detectives can do anything, he lifts the gun to his head. No, don't! No, don't! Oh, no! Why didn't you let me die? Yes, why didn't we? Why didn't you let Teresa Camaro live? Because I couldn't. I had to get rid of her. Why did you have to? I had no choice. She would have ruined my life. It seems to be pretty well ruined anyway. You don't understand. I told her never to come back. I'd given her money even though I didn't have much then. She could have destroyed my marriage. And? She kept on pursuing me. She wouldn't leave me alone. When I got home that evening, she was lying naked on my bed. She knew where I kept my spare keys and just let herself in. And my fiancé was coming in 15 minutes. 
There was no other way. And then? I put her in the cold storage room, and it kept raining, so I had to leave her there for five days. Well, weren't you afraid someone would find her? No. Goranson had the other set of keys, and he was away. Did Goranson know that you'd murdered Teresa? He worked it out. He wasn't stupid. I gave him 10,000 kroner and a new car once I was married. And? He got in touch with me again last autumn. He rang me and said that someone was shadowing him day and night. He was scared and needed money. I gave him money and tried to get him to go abroad. But he didn't? No. He was too scared. Thought it would look suspicious. So you had to kill him? I had no choice. He would have ruined everything. I knew he'd try and come to me for protection or that the police would force him to talk. <laughs> he was an addict. He was weak. How did you know Goranson would be on the bus? He rang me and said that he was frightened, so I told him to be on that bus and I'd take him somewhere safe. So you told him what to do in order to be murdered? At least I did it humanely. He never knew a thing. You decided to kill Goranson and Inspector Stenstrom weeks beforehand, didn't you? Yes. How did you know Stenstrom was a policeman? I'd watched him earlier. I knew he was following Goranson. No one ever relieved him, so I knew he was working alone. So you killed him and everyone else on that bus? I was defending myself and my family. My whole existence. Everything I live for. Much later that night, Martin Beck and Colbert are in Beck's office. While Melander is clearing the last bits and pieces from Stenstrom's desk. Well, it won't be much comfort to war, sir, but it was Stenstrom who cleared up the Teresa murder. <sighs> yes. But he went about it in a stupid way all the same, working on his own, not leaving so much as a piece of paper behind him. He never really grew up, did he? Never had the chance. Martin? Yeah? It's Melander. Where are you? Fosbear confessed it all in the hospital. It's over. I don't know. Well, I don't care if he'll live. How many did he kill? Nine? What a bastard. Well, anyway... Are you still out at Vesperia? Yes, listen. I thought you two had searched Stenstrom's office. Yeah, we had, we did. Not well enough, then. I found the missing page. The missing page? Where? On Stenstrom's desk, under the blotter. You said you'd looked there. Well, I thought we had. We looked, we looked under the blotter, didn't we, Colbert? I thought so. So what did you find? He'd made a couple of notes on the page. In the top right-hand corner, it says, to be replaced in the Teresa file. No. And at the bottom of the page, he's written Bjorn Fosbear with a question mark. He'd written Bjorn Fosbear at the bottom of the page? Oh, shit, I don't believe it. Oh, you're joking, aren't you, Melanda? You must be joking. Tell me you are joking, please. No, Martin, I'm not. <laughs> In The Laughing Policeman by Mai Huerval and Parvoleur, Martin Beck was played by Stephen McIntosh, Lenart Colbert by Neil Pearson, and Melander by Adrian Scarborough. 
Rune was Russell Bolter. Forsbear, Patrick Brennan, and Inga Beck, Lucy Black. Ingrid Beck was played by Lauren Crace. Gunn Colbert by Sally Oruk, and Orsa Terrell by Claire Corbett. Birgerson was played by Jonathan Taffler. Tori Assasson by Don Gillet. Blonde Marlin by Christine Absalom, and the car showroom manager by Robert Blythe. The workman was Harry Livingston, and the mechanic Sam Alexander. The narrators were Leslie Sharp and Nicholas Gleaves. The Laughing Policeman was translated from the Swedish by Alan Blair and dramatised for radio by Jennifer Howarth. The director was Sarah Davis. <laughs>